to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, That's God's word. You can be seated. Last week we talked about the church, uh, the church, God sends, the reality that God is continuing his rescue plan, his plan of redemption for humanity through the church. We talked about the idea that the church is God's plan A and there isn't a plan B. If you're going to try to get to know God, uh, he's not going to write a letter for you up in the sky. He's not going to get an airplane with a message behind it. He's going he's to use fundamentally his people, the church, to communicate the good news to those who don't already know it and have it. And so we talked about that. And we talked about the reality that many people are enamored with and like Jesus, not too hot on the church. And the reasons for that are probably obvious. Many people see the church as being hypocritical, being judgmental, being too enwrapped in politics and all sort of other sideshow issues. And that uh, criticism, to a large degree, is probably fair. And so it begs the question from that discussion of, okay, we're the church, we're called to represent God, to, we've been sent to all kinds of people with a gospel message, empowered by the Spirit, okay, but what makes us different? Or at least, what should make the church different? So we don't have to acknowledge, if we're honest, oftentimes we're not all that different from everyone else. Uh, our values often, though we on paper would say they're one thing, we live out something else. And there is hypocrisy even in us, isn't there? Raise your hand if you've ever been a hypocrite. Okay, all, all hands up. The rest of you are hypocrites. <laughs> right, so, so what we're talking about today as we talk about worship is really what we're talking about is we're talking about allegiance and devotion, loyalty, Who has your ultimate allegiance? Who are you loyal to? And what will fundamentally make the church of Jesus Christ different is that their loyalty is increasingly with God. At least that's what should make us different. So that's what we're talking about today as we think worship. We're not just talking about singing songs. We're not just talking about um, making sacrifices in a temple. We're talking about a life that's loyal to God, that's driven by devotion to God. And so if you get any big idea from today, here's what it would be, is that the gospel, that word simply means good news, the good news about Jesus Christ creates people who are increasingly loyal to God. The good news creates people that are increasingly loyal to God. So that's what we're talking about today. We're not fundamentally talking about a particular action or a particular expression. It's a life devoted to God. We're going to look at a number of things today. I've got four kind of main ideas. Here's the the first one. Under, under, I guess, that big idea, uh, first point would be this. God created us in his image to give allegiance to him. God created us in his image to give allegiance to him. God created us that our loyalty would be with him. 
we've talked over the course of this series as we've looked at, at from the very beginning of, of who God is and creation. And we go all the way to the end and, and the final kingdom of God in just a few short weeks we'll be there. This has gone fast for me. I don't know if it feels like that to you, but this has been a, a great study of those things. And what we, right towards the beginning, we looked at the fact that God created us as his image bearers. Remember that? I think uh, Pastor Vince was here and he was talking about that we were created to be like mirrors reflecting the glory of God back to him and to the world around us. That's what we're to be. We're to be loyal to him. We, as God's created beings in his image, have a purpose. And that purpose is to honor him, to be loyal to him, to be devoted to him. That's what God has created us to be. Now, throughout the Bible, this idea of allegiance or devotion or, or worship, this kind of big idea, gets expressed in some more specific ways. And so I want to give you a couple ways that these are expressed. Uh, we'll put these on the screen. Uh, the first way that the Bible expresses this kind of allegiance and, and devotion is the word praise. Praise. Praise is lifting up. Praise is adoring. Uh, praise is rejoicing in. And so here would be an example in Psalm uh, chapter 150, uh, verses 1 through 6. This is actually, I think, the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do you have breath today? Yeah, you got breath. You were created to praise the Lord, to make much of the Lord. It begins saying, praise him in his sanctuary. Praise him everywhere. Praise him for his deeds. Praise him for his character. Praise him with loud noises. This is why, by the way, we have a drum kit. Did you see it? We're just obeying. Verse 5, praise him with loud clashing cymbals. That's a good thing. That's a biblical thing. To, to make much, to celebrate, to rejoice in God is simply a way to affirm your allegiance to him. Right, any, any team, any army, any country, they have, they have national anthems. They have songs, right? Because if you believe in something, if you love something, you create a song to exemplify it. So, so you praise the Lord, and not just with singing, but with your mouth and with your words. This is a, a, a way that the Bible describes how we would give our allegiance to God. Now, another phrase that the Bible often uses that's different from this idea of praise, but they're similar, kind of like two sides of the same coin, would be the word worship. Worship. Now, worship gets used in a lot of different ways. A lot of people write about it. Um, churches split over definitions of it. Um, there's, there's all sorts of arguments about it. Oftentimes when people think worship, they just think music or music style. But the Bible actually describes it differently. So in this message, we're, we're kind of talking broadly about the idea of worship, sort of how everyone uh, culturally understands it. But specifically, if you look at how the Bible describes it, it's different. Worship is really a surrender. It's a bowing down. So if, if praise is lifting up and exalting... Worship is bowing down and surrendering, yielding yourself to someone or something. 
That's literally what the word means. So there's all sorts of places in the scripture where it will talk about somebody bowing down, and that's the same Hebrew word that gets translated worship. So, for example, in Psalm 95, verse 6, I think this is interesting. It says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You know what it says there? It says, Come, let us bow down and bow down. But in English, I guess the translators feel like repetitive things like that are, you know, we get bored reading repetitive things. But that's the emphasis in the Hebrew, actually, is let us bow down and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. It's a, it's a posture of submission. It's an attitude of the heart of surrender, praise, and worship. Praise, lifting up, exalting, delighting in, talking about something. Worship, surrendering to it. Bowing your life before it. And you were created to praise God. To worship God. You were created in such a way that nothing else should have your allegiance. Nothing else should be the supreme song of your heart. And nothing else should cause you to bow in fear and trembling and honor before it. Nothing else. You were created to give allegiance to God. I want to focus for almost this entire message on what happens outside the walls of this room, okay? So so almost everything after what I'm about to talk about just now is going to be related to what happens Monday through Saturday, not what happens here. But we can't have a discussion about allegiance to God and praise and worship and those terms without talking at least for just a moment about what happens here when we gather, okay? Can we talk about that? So I want to just do something in in light of those scriptures we read. I want to declare war on apathetic, ho-hum, hands-in-my-pockets, disinterested praise and worship in this gathering. Can we declare war on that? Can we do that? I mean, let's go, seriously. If, If we are worshiping the living God, we're submitting our hearts to him, and we're praising him, and we're exalting him, How dare we give him anything other than some energy and some passion? Listen, I know you don't always know the words to the songs. I know it's not always super familiar. But if we are giving our affection to God, how dare we we be bored? I remember going in college to a concert. Uh, I went to the University of Illinois, and we drove up to Chicago to Wheaton College, a Christian college there in Chicago. From what I understand, a good school, I don't really know. And we went to a concert there, and I remember sitting there, and I'm probably in about the 10th row, and the band just starts. And, you know, I'm like, you know, moving, because, right, I mean, it's music. And, and, and there's good mu- and it's good music, and, right, you just are moving. And I noticed that everyone in the whole room is, is sitting still. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Well, it turns out Wheaton has a no dancing policy. So even like a head bob was, and what I heard was that, you know, they encouraged dating couples to not have premarital sex because it would lead to dancing. (laughs) Just kidding. But there's something just inappropriate about going to a concert and sitting there still. And there's something inappropriate about coming to a gathering with God's people and being apathetic. May it never be. Listen, 
I understand all of us are different. We're different in temperament. We're different in personality. Some of you, everything you do is exciting and energetic and wow, and that's just your personality. And so it's very easy for you to be that. It's like Matthew, you know, he's not here so I can pick on him. I, I always, I tell him to his face, you're the world's biggest seven-year-old. I mean, he is just pumped about anything he gets excited about, and it's wonderful. And many of you are not like that. Many of you, you're more reserved, you're more, maybe, maybe you're, you know, you grew up Presbyterian, where it's like, indeed, is like as pumped up as you get, right? I don't know what that is. But listen, I'm not, I'm, the scripture here isn't calling us to be something we're not. What the scripture's calling us to is to redline whoever we are. Whoever you are, when we gather together to praise and to exalt and to surrender ourselves before God, he gets our best, okay? So, so I would love for the rest of our time together today and for the weeks and the months and the years to come that when we gather to here, we aren't phoning it in. We aren't here just, well, I just, church is really all about the sermon. No. It's the whole experience of adoring and lifting up and making much of God. The sermon's part of that, but... Wouldn't it be great if next week when Matthew came back, he didn't even recognize us? Because we were like so loud and he'd, he'd be like, man, they must have missed me. And we would just know, no, no, we're obeying the Bible. Can we do that? Let's respond to God's goodness. So, so that's, that's little parentheses about our gathering together. I, I want to talk about the rest of our time though, because your life isn't lived in this box. Your life is lived elsewhere. And what God is calling you to when it comes to your allegiance and your devotion is not to show up and, and be loyal to him on Sunday and then be disloyal to him everywhere else, right? So, so my wife, Molly, um, she, she loves when I express my love to her and when I tell her that, that I care for her and that she's wonderful. And how do you think she'd respond if I said, honey, you know, I, I'm, I'm only going to do that on su- Sunday morning at 830 and then the rest of the week, I'm, I probably won't tell you much, but, but trust me, I mean, you'll know from that one hour, I love you. Not so well, right? And so the rest of our lives, all of our lives, need to be giving allegiance to God. That's how he created us. But the truth is, because of sin, our allegiance to God has shifted away from him and instead is shifted towards created things. So we worship created things instead of the creator. So number one, God created us to be loyal, to give him allegiance. But two, because of sin, we give our allegiance to created things. This is what the Bible talks about in Romans chapter one. We're going to bounce around a bit today in the scripture, uh, but in Romans chapter one, it's a little bit before the passage we read. Uh, One of the things that you see in Romans chapter one is this exchange you see that, that sin isn't fundamentally about breaking the rules. Sin is, get this, look up here, sin is a worship disorder. Sin is not fundamentally, you were supposed to do this and you didn't. The condition of our hearts, the conditions of disobeying God are fundamentally the fact that we give our loyalty, our allegiance, our worship, we surrender to other things. It's a worship disorder. Look at Romans 1, starting verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. This is talking about just just everyone everywhere, Gentiles, people, just natural man all over the world. 
All of us are like this naturally. Although they knew God, there were things we could know about God through his creation. Although they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Everyone is guilty of this. Everyone naturally is giving their loyalty, their allegiance to the creature rather than the creator. Now for you, it may not be exactly you know, bowing down before a totem pole or worshiping the sun, but all of us naturally are giving our loyalties to other people and other things. That's where our allegiance lies. Everyone is always expressing allegiance to something. That's why Harold Best gives a definition in his book, Unceasing Worship, that that he defines worship as the continuous outpouring of all that we are, all that we hope to be towards whatever our chosen God is. That we are just constantly giving ourselves, it's just another way to say it, our allegiance, our loyalty to something else. Now, what I know is that it's easier to see this in other people and in other cultures than it is in yourself. So I want to share with you an extended quote. This is from Mark Driscoll and Jerry Brashears uh, from their doctrine book um, that, that I think is a helpful quote. Re- you can just sort of follow along with me as I read this. They say, in ancient cultures, social life revolved around sanctuaries, temples, and stadiums. Their various gods and goddesses were worshipped as people gave their time, talent, and treasure as sacrifices to the adoration of their deity. Even the buildings themselves were built as acts of worship. Today, little has changed. The temple of Ra, the sun god, has now been replaced with warm weather resorts and tanning salons where worshippers pay homage to their bronzing god. The temples of Ptah, the god of craftsmen, are today hardware stores and craftsmen tools. The temples at Nemea, Olympia, Delphi, Istamia included stadiums which have now been replaced with soccer fields, baseball parks, football stadiums, and basketball arenas where pagan fans dress up like they always have as birds and animals to cheer for their gods as they score points. Go Cardinals. <laughs> the healing cults of Asclepios with sanctuaries at Epidauros, I'm doing my best here, and Corinth have been replaced with holistic health spas. The oracular gods often had sanctuaries near fresh water sources that we refer to as beaches, campsites, golf courses, and fishing holes. The temp- at the Temple of Apollo, prophetic pronouncements about the future were given. These have now been superseded by speculating newscasts and blogs as a sort of digital divination by which the future can be predicted. The Temple of Thoth was where the god of writing and knowledge was worshipped, and he is now housed in local libraries and universities. Monthu, the god of battle, was worshipped at Armont, but is now more commonly found at war and veteran monuments, along with appearances in violent video games and cage fights. Men, an early fertility deity, was worshipped at Koptos, but today is present at medical fertility clinics. Hathor, the goddess of motherhood, was worshipped at Byblos in ancient days, but is relocated to birthing centers. 
Temple of Nith in the Delta was connected to medical education, which is presently found in medical schools and research centers. The Temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, where sex was part of the worship, has now gone global with internet pornography. The small shrines that filled ancient homes and required homage and financial sacrifice have long since been upgraded with home entertainment systems and high-speed internet connections. Finally, Paul once said that our God is our stomach, and that God is worshipped by the gluttonous and obese at all-you-can-eat buffets. Indeed, when our culture is considered through the lens of worship and idolatry, primitive ancient paganism seems far less primitive or ancient. This is because everyone, everywhere, is continually worshiping. And idolatry is sadly seen more easily when we examine other cultures rather than our own. This is because we often have too narrow an understanding of worship, and we do not see that idolatry empowers our sin. Everyone everywhere is always worshiping. Everyone everywhere is giving their allegiance to something. And here's the bad part, is these things that we give our allegiance to, the the people or the reputation or the honor or the money or the stuff, whatever it is that you find your heart giving its allegiance to, always destroy you. They always worship or whisper now. They never whisper later. And they are there to ruin you. It reminds me of a bunch of Gollum, if you've read or seen Lord of the Rings, right? And you, you see in one of the movies how Gollum became Gollum. What was his name before Gollum? Sneedly? Smeagol? Uh, I don't remember. You guys know. Thank you. So he's Smeagol. He's, he's a seemingly regular guy. And he becomes entranced with this ring loves it. He's loyal to it. He kills to have it. And what you see as you watch him become Gollum is that it ruins him. Though he sits there and he he holds it like my ring. My ring looks a lot like the one. My precious. He holds it and he fights for it and he clenches it and all it does is ruin his life. The same thing is true of our idols. I know a man who uh, has been married now for 30 plus years, and ever since he had children, his God of choice were his kids. He worshiped his kids, lived for his kids, made every possible sacrifice for his kids. Didn't just love them, didn't just care for them, worshiped them. They were his functional God. As a result, he neglected his marriage, though they're still married today. It's a weak marriage. It's a dysfunctional marriage. There's lots of fighting. There's lots of disagreement. There's lots of tension in the marriage. And as a result, the children that he has always worshipped don't even want to be around him and his wife anymore because the marriage is so dysfunctional and bad for their kids. He worshipped a created thing, a good thing. Kids are a good thing. They're not an ultimate thing. He worshipped them, and it's ruining his life. So a couple questions for diagnosis here to be able to try to discern what, what oh man, what are, what are the things, I'm, you got to get this, I'm worshiping something all the time, so are you. What is that? Here are a couple diagnostic questions. Number one, who or what do you praise most passionately and frequently? Who gets your most excited energy? 
Who do you praise? What do you praise most passionately? They get your best. Man, they are, someone that knows you well says, man, they are really into that. Is it possible that that is something you worship? Number two, for whom or what do you sacrifice your time, health, emotion, money, and energy? What do these acts of worship reveal about what you've chosen to deify in your life? Listen, don't get a job that takes you away from your family most of the time because you got a nice raise and say that you're doing it for your kids. No, you're not. You're doing it for something else. Whatever you sacrifice your time, health, emotion, and money and energy for, that's what you worship. For those of you that, that have things that you genuinely like and love and enjoy, this is, this is hard, isn't it, right? Like, I, I love being in pastoral ministry. I love preaching. I love leading this church. And it is tempting to worship the ministry and not the God of the ministry. That's because I like it. I mean, it'd be easier if I just hated this. Like, I'm just going home. I'm going to praise God (laughs) because I hate my job. But I like my job. It's fun. I enjoy it. If you're in a position like that, maybe you have a hobby. You have some things you like. Those will tempt you to worship them. Here's the third thing we see, though. Here's where the good news begins. Is that the gospel, the good news of redemption, the gospel commands us to give allegiance to God. There's good news. There's there's the good news of the gospel coming and commanding us again back to be who we were intended to be. And so I want you to look at the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. We're not going to look at all of them, just the, the first couple. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them. Get that? That's worship. Or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. But did you notice something? Go back to the slide before. That's the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But what came before the commandment? The gospel of redemption. The good news of redemption. The good news of rescue. The Ten Commandments don't say, as so many believe, do all these things and then God will be happy with you. The Ten Commandments actually say, I'm the Lord. I've already brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In light of the grace and the mercy and the rescue you've already received, go live this way. So many people wrongly think That God is in the Old Testament in general and the Ten Commandments is saying you got to do these things as a test to see if, if if you do this, then you'll be saved. No. The gospel of redemption, it's the good news that commands us to give our allegiance to God. And it does command full allegiance. No other gods before me. That's the first command. Now think about this for a second. You would never break commandments two through ten 
if you didn't first break commandment one. Right? You don't commit adultery until you've already worshipped your ego and your pleasure. You don't break the Sabbath until you've already worshipped your work and the prestige that that provides. You don't lie until you've already worshipped your reputation. So that's the fundamental issue is who and what do you worship? If, 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 if you obey command one, you obey all the others. Romans 12 is a very similar kind of passage. This is what, where we started, what we read together this morning. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What's the command? What's the appeal? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that sound like? Worship, bowing down, sacrificing, surrender. In fact, he says, this is your spiritual worship or service. This is your devotion to the Lord is that your life would be on the altar. You are a living sacrifice. All that you are is surrendered to him. That's the appeal. That's the command. But why does he give it? Do you see how it starts? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In light of the mercies of God. This is the same thing as the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before him in light of how he's rescued you. And if you read Romans 1 through 11, all you'll see are 11 chapters, 11 glorious and great chapters about the mercies of God. The fact that though we exchange the truth about God for a lie, that God would send his own son who never worshipped anything but his father. And that son died in our place. And in light of those mercies, your whole body's his. Your whole life is his. Here's, I love how the message says this. Now, the message is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Uh, oftentimes it's helpful, not always. It's not, uh, it, it's not a, a great translation, but it's a good paraphrase. And here's what he says in the message. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Don't you like that? Your everyday ordinary life. You're walking around. You're doing business. You're mothering. You're job searching. Your fantasy football. I can't wait for fantasy football to start. And I, and I need all of that to be brought before God as an offering. If I don't, I'll worship fantasy football. I'm that evil that I would do that. So, so even that is to say, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it for fun. I'm going to do it with these people I love. Everyday, ordinary life. Listen, if you can't place your everyday, ordinary life on the altar and say, God, that is yours. God, I surrender this to you. Th th these, these people that you've given me in my family, I surrender them to you. If you can't do that in all of your life, you're not loyal to God. 
I know that sounds so harsh, but think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone doesn't hate his father and mother and sister and brother and come follow me, he's not fit for the kingdom. Those are hard words from Jesus. And it's because he created us to give allegiance only to him. So here's a couple more diagnostic questions. How commonly and clearly do you confess Jesus Christ in the words you speak, type, and sing? How commonly do you talk about Jesus? Do do the people around you know that you love him? Not do they know you're religious. Not do they know you're moral. Do they know you love Jesus? How commonly do you, do you talk about him? How clearly do you talk about him? And then number two, in what ways is your devotion to Jesus obvious by the way you work, the way you handle business deals, customers, employees, the way you raise children, the attitude you have? So the first question is asking the things you say. How much does your speech, how much does your communication, maybe typed, I love that that's included, typed, How much does that communicate your affection for and your loyalty to God? But then, number two is, how much does your life back it up? Is it obvious? I mean, if people have worked with you for years, would they know you're a Christian? One of the most just biggest indictments I've heard people say is, you know, I I work there and I think they might know I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure. And, and, and the fundamental way that they know that is not necessarily um, by you decorating your, your cube with bumper stickers, right? No Jesus, no hell. No Jesus with a K. Right? I mean, what is this? This is crazy. But is it the way you work that you're always honest? You're straightforward. When you screw up, you're the first person to admit it rather than hide and lie and fudge. You're reliable. You're dependable. People count on you. That's a life of worship. So the gospel of redemption commands us to give allegiance to God. But here's the, good, here's the even better news. The gospel of redemption doesn't only command us to give allegiance to God. The gospel of redemption enables us to give uh, allegiance to God. I love the old saying, it's attributed some to John Bunyan, some to other, uh, other Puritans throughout history, but the phrase goes like this, run, John, and run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel doesn't just command you to give allegiance to God. It enables you to. It empowers you to do it. It transforms your heart in such a way that the affections of your heart, the desire of your heart, are no longer on other things. They are on him. I love Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, which say this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What will train you to become godly? To be self-controlled and upright? What will train you for that? Is it me standing up here harping on you and going, you idol worshiper, worship Jesus. That'll work for a bit. 
But what, what you need, what I need, is a fundamental reorientation of the heart. Where now, the scripture says something impossible, like have no other gods before me, or fly, but it gives me wings. That is good news. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God. And then it says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Listen, if the grace of God, the appearing of Jesus, has not transformed you in such a way that you are now increasingly loyal to him, then you have to ask whether the gospel has touched your heart at all. Notice, I I picked the word intentionally. Some churches will talk about that a true disciple is fully devoted to God. And and I I, I guess I agree with that. But but I like the idea of saying the gospel of God produces people that are increasingly loyal to him. Because we are a work in progress, aren't we? But, But listen, if you're not increasingly loyal to God, if you can't look back over the last month, the last year, the last five years, and see God changing your affection and your loyalty, then you have some questions to ask. And the answer isn't get more discipline, work harder. The answer is see the grace of God that's appeared. See the Savior who has come, who gave himself to redeem us. See that. Worship him. Uh, Driscoll and Brashears in their book, they make, I think, a great point. They say because we worship our way into sin, we need to worship our way out of it. And it is as we look to the Father, it is as we look to the Son, it is as we look to the Spirit, we worship this triune God. And we adore Him and we praise Him and our lives are fundamentally more and more bowed down before Him. As we do that, we're changed. We're going to sing together in just a moment. And uh, let's let that just be a preview of the week that we're going to go out and live in adoration to God, okay? But let's blow the roof off this place, all right? Let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you um, so much for, for the good news, the grace of God that's appeared and that has brought salvation, brought rescue, trained us to renounce ungodliness and to live lives that are changed and different. We thank you for that. That is good news. God, help us to embrace that news. Help us to see Jesus as glorious and worth giving our whole lives to. God, I thank you for that good news. And I pray for each of us here that as we identify areas of idolatry, areas where we give ourselves to other things, things that get more of our passion and and more of our intensity, and more of our joy than you. God, I pray that we would put our fingers on those by your spirit, and then then turn them to you, surrender them even to you. God, would you change us, transform us from the inside out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.